Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Matt Offenbacher. Matt, how are you doing this early crisp morning? It's great to be lovely. That's all I can say, Justin. (laughs) I know, I've been waiting to tell you that and I wanted to hold back and make you wait, but now I just felt like it was the right time. So, but it's good to get on the mic here and it's a little crisp this morning, which is nice. You know, I never thought I'd say that. Growing up in Canada, I always wanted it to be warmer. And over the last six months, I was kind of looking forward to some colder weather. So here we are before, I guess, Texas winter sets in, which is not really like a winter. But nonetheless, it's good to be able to, you know, wear some, some comfy clothes around the house and throw the fireplace on, burn some natural gas, you know? Agreed. So here we are. When I think dive into something a little more technical today. And something that it's common in certain areas is something that everyone that even comes in contact or even gets on a location in the oil field, especially on the upstream side needs to be aware of is H2S, which is also known as hydrogen sulfide. And something that I personally haven't been exposed to, well, I guess indirectly I have, you know, working on the rigs, alarms would go off or they would detect some, you would mask up, but there's some serious protocols that take place and some serious measures to make sure, you know, to ensure safety for everyone on the rig. And if anyone's ever been on a rig, I'm sure you've either had to do a get fit tested for a mask, maybe do some, you know, a couple day course before getting on the rig. I know in Canada that we have a a certificate called H2S Alive that every rig hand, and at least from my experience going on a drilling rig, everyone needs that. And so you have to take this, this class and go through the course. And it's something that's very important. In some areas you can drill and never experience it. In the permit, it's something that's, you know, very common. And so, yeah, talking about that, Matt, I think would be something good to touch on. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a big deal, right? It's kind of one of those things I think most of us have learned how to work with it, but we also know that it in high concentrations can be deadly and obviously needs to be taken seriously. And, and certainly there's a lot we can do on the fluids front to help mitigate the risk. Right. All right. Well then, I mean, first and foremost, let's get into what is H2S, Matt? How would you describe it? So, I mean, it's poisonous, I think as as we've described, and it's described as, as sour, but the fact is that it's something that can kill you so quickly that generally, if you can smell it, it's in a relatively low concentration. So it's it's notorious for kind of a rotten egg smell, but when you have a serious case of it, it actually disables the nerves in your nasal passages for you to even be able to pick up that odor. But it's something that's, you know, we drill into it quite a lot. You know, the Permian where we do so much work, a lot of the conversation centers around all these SWD wells. We, we talked recently about taking water flows and there's a lot of bacteria that can generate H2S as part of their biogenic processes. And so that's where you hear folks who have been out in West Texas for a long time say, actually, it's gotten a lot worse. It wasn't this bad before drilling these intermediate sections, and now we encounter it much more often. You know, another thing in the oil field that we see uh, as not uncommon is confined space entry. I mean, that's why we talk about permitting and a lot of protocols, because you hear these stories of, you know, let's say you had a little bit of water-based mud and some bacteria got to it. You might have a tank that's filled with just, you know, mostly empty 
you go in there and it can overtake you. And so there's just a lot of protocols about detection and other safety issues. And, and in some areas, it's, it's well known. I know Wyoming, we were talking about up in Canada, you know, it's not uncommon to drill into it. And so in areas where it's well known or, or even expected, you know, the operator may have a very detailed plan as far as notifying authorities, you know, kind of a radius if you encounter it of like notifying individuals and evacuation. So it can be pretty detailed, but it needs to be taken seriously just because, I mean, the stuff can kill you. It's flammable. There's very few nice things to say about H2S, I would say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like you said, the level of seriousness surrounding it is, is very high. I mean, you spend, like you said, depending on what the expectations are like going into a certain area and drilling into a certain area. Yeah. There may be a full blown mitigation plan, which a lot of times there is anyways, but yeah, I mean, I remember back in Canada going into areas sort of close to the Rockies, you know, encountering it and yeah, you had to kind of shut the rig down, go to your muster area, always go upwind, you know, as they say is always important, but there's usually muster areas and you'd go and you get masked up. And I actually remember as a safety measure at one point having to trip pipe, with masks on and you know you had your air hose you know connected to the obviously the the source and you can work around it but it's definitely something that is it makes it challenging and there's a lot of risk involved especially with you know poisonous gas because it can yeah again it's not common like you don't hear on the headlines that you know h2s is, is wiping out the oil field but i think through the years we've done a good job of mitigating the risks and, you know, especially from a fluids perspective, which we'll talk about, like what we can do to pre-treat our system to help mitigate the effects of it coming to surface and it, you know, causing some serious damage. So, but I guess before that point, I mean, what happens, you know, let's say we're drilling away. What happens when we actually encounter H2S, you know, on a rig, Matt? So, I mean, hopefully if we encounter enough and we'll get into just scavengers and that sort of thing, but a lot of times we're carrying some, some material that will actually scavenge basic threshold concentrations. But anyways, in most areas, there are a number of detectors, not only on the rig, but individuals, you'll have your personal detector as well. And I think typically those go off at about 10 parts per million. Now, there is specific OSHA protocols as far as how many hours you can be exposed to 10 parts per million, which is relatively low. But as you've alluded to, as concentrations go up, if you have to continue work, you need some sort of breathing apparatus. Typically, you know, with those breathing apparatuses, you know, people like Justin can't keep their beautiful, beautiful beards <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're fit tested for a mask. They want to make sure of all those things. So that's kind of like the first, you know, it depends on, you know, what the concentration is. As you mentioned, going upwind, it's, you, you know, there's a windsock on the rig. And normally you look up at that, find your muster point in one direction or the other, basically kind of figure out what the situation is and then get into your, your protocols. I've actually, you know, obviously if you can divert and flare it, H2S is flammable. I've heard old war stories of the rig just being totally overwhelmed and they actually keep a flare gun at the rig to, ignite the gas if it's coming up over the rotary, which I just can't imagine getting hit with that kind of a slug and not, you know, really affecting somebody mm -hmm. uh, if it shows up in that concentration. No kidding. But a lot of it depends on how much you're encountering and, you know, the overall conditions. And so your H2S plan is going to include a lot of those things. 
you know, so those are kind of the general, you know, initial things on the mud side, you know, you might see the mud kind of dull or sort of flocculate. So if it's water-based, you'll see it thicken a little bit. It'll turn a dark color and H2S being an acid gas, it's very corrosive. It can actually cause the pipe to splinter. And so normally in a known H2S area, you might actually use high yield strength pipe, not the typical stuff that we encounter. So there's just, there's, there's sort of a lot going on from that perspective and all of it's happening at once, which once again is why it's important to have a plan and kind of know what, you know, know about the situations you're facing and what to do when. Right. So with H2S as well, I mean, there's risk for corrosion with H2S, is there not? Definitely. And what you can see is, is you can actually see cracking of the pipe. So hydrogen corrosion is typically known for sort of these splinters. You can actually see like the ends of the pipe. It almost, I mean, it just looks like a long crack as opposed to pitting or some of the other types of corrosion we've talked about. It can be quite distinctive. And there's actually an SPE paper recently presented talking about new inspection protocols for the Permian Basin in particular, because they were having issues detecting small amounts of H2S corrosion and the risk of twist off and other things because it can be so bad. Right. Well, and I, I think something important to note is while H2S can bring in corrosion, it's more on the water side because it has the presence of, of you know, oxygen with it being water, but on the oil-based mud side, why maybe that, why would that not be necessarily as much of a concern? So I think when we've talked about corrosion, you know, keep in mind that you kind of need that conductive path. And so oil-based mud, because you don't have the electrolyte, the, the water continuous side of things, you don't have that conductive path. Mm. That being said, it's something that just because of all the other things going on where you can destabilize the mud because you've got acid, you're dry, losing alkalinity, there can be some destabilizing effects where you, you may, it's not likely, but you may encounter corrosion in an oil-based mud environment if the oil-based mud is destabilized. So if, if you took a big hit of it and destabilize your oil-based mud, you might have some of those conductive pathways. So not to say it can't happen, but the other, you know, the flip side of that is most of the time you're going to be using water-based mud. And the reason is if you know you're going to counter H2S, one of the important things to remember is that like many of these gases, the, if they solubilize in oil, it means as you're circulating up to surface, you could take a big hit of it as it kind of comes out of solution at lower pressure once it circulates to surface. So if you know you're going to drill through H2S, it's very likely that you will drill with water-based mud as one of your strategies. So I think for the most part, you know, I've never, I've just heard stories. I've never encountered anything where oil-based mud actually induced that kind of corrosion because it destabilized. I just know it would, it would be a fight both on the solubility and the maintenance perspective. I'm sure someone out there can point out that there are oil soluble H2S scavengers. There's a lot of other things. They're expensive and they're typically not found in drilling fluids. Not to say you couldn't get them, but in all likelihood, you're drilling with water-based mud. Gotcha. Well, then, then let's keep going down that path. So assuming we're drilling with water-based mud, we start seeing some H2S. What's some of the first sort of action items that we would start with, with regards to treating H2S? So, I mean, the first thing that you're going to want to do, well, I mean, first thing ideally would be to you know wait up or whatever you can do to stop bringing in H2S. But with respect to what's in the system, you're going to raise your pH. Mm-hmm. I think most people know this, 
the key to keep in mind is that you have to think about, we, we've talked about soluble species and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, the acid direction, what you have is you have those hydrogens, right? They, they go away as you increase your pH, you just have that OH minus. So if I have more hydrogens, that's where I get my H2S. If I increase my pH, eventually on that curve, I go from H2S to losing an H, so I have HS minus, and then I go all the way to S2 minus. And so above about 11, you've, you're pretty much down to zero available hydrogens, which means you're not going to have any available H2S. The problem is that is, that's one thing, but you've got to keep that pH up. And as soon as that pH drops, you're giving it all those hydrogens and you're going to have H2S again. So this is totally reversible. And an 11 pH is attainable, but instead of, let's say you're running a polymer mud or something like that, or you get overly aggressive on the caustic, you can burn up all your polymers. You can do other things that could rip up your mud. So, you know, a lot of times we're drawing the intermediate with brine or, you know, those kinds of things. And it's, it's not even enterlite. We've run the, the pH up above 11 when we've encountered H2S, we've been okay, but it's, that's a pretty high pH. But that is the first thing is make, you know, get the H2S distribution down so that you don't have those available hydrogens. But then what you want to do is make sure that you can scavenge and actually remove, lock up the H2S into a different compound in an irreversible manner. And that is probably, you know, the next thing that, that you really need to look at is what kind of scavengers do, am I using? And if you know the concentration of H2S, you can calculate how much scavenger to add. Of course, you're going to sandbag that a little bit because you want to carry excess. You don't want to have just enough. You want to have a little bit more. Right. So, so what kind of scavengers you mentioned? Or yeah, I mean, because so assuming you know the concentration, you've got scavengers available. And what types of different scavengers are there? So probably the favorite is, or at least my favorite, is an amine or a triazine, which basically it's a liquid. What's great about it is it's a liquid. So it's really easy to pour in. It's easy to inject into the system. It goes into solution right away. So there's not a lot of ton of time wasting to, you know, mix it or what have you. And so that would probably be kind of the first one. There's different flavors and varieties of all of these products, but triazine compounds are, are probably first and foremost. Although if you talk to most folks who've been at it for a while, the very first thing they might mention to you is, is probably zinc carbonate zinc carbonate or iron oxide, which are solid particles. And the reaction time can take a little bit longer depending on how finely ground it is, what kind of surface area you've got. But those are solid materials, which means, you know, you've got to get them mixed into a liquid. You need to suspend them and keep them distributed, but they will form effectively irreversible reactions under drilling conditions to tie that hydrogen sulfide up. So these are things on a contingency you can carry around and use I got you. Let me think. Anything else? There's other stuff. It just tends to be considerably more expensive. So those would probably be the, the most common. Yeah, sorry. The ones that you typically see on location, or at least those are the ones that, and through my experience, have seen. And, and it's always good to have contingency products. The last thing you want to do is if you're a mud engineer and you, you don't have this on locations, oh, the warehouse is relatively close by. If you know you're going to be encountering or potentially encountering some H2S, have a good contingency plan, have products know, you know, the max concentration that you can get into your system given, you know, obviously you'll never know how much you might get back, but in certain areas that, that have been drilled, you have a pretty decent idea. And with regards to H2S and, and the pH, 
you know, Matt mentioned increasing and, you know, maintaining around 11, H2S will want to draw that down. And so, you know, it's, it's not uncommon that you're drilling along and, and your pH will just want to come down and you're hammering the lime and perhaps the caustic and, you know, have contingency, have extra on location. And, and if there's any question about it, you know, you just make sure everyone's on the same page and say, Hey, if we, if we start seeing H2S is I'm going to burn through this product real fast. And I don't want to depend on, you know, trucking to be available to get me, you know, product out here. If, if we're, you know, drilling ahead, we don't want to obviously slow down or, 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 you know, anything like that. So just having excess product on location, you know, at least if you're drilling on the pad for the first well on the pad, you don't ever want to get caught with, you know, not having enough and having your pH draw down and then having to wait on anybody. So just kind of, you know, operationally, that's something that you want to always make sure. So man, we mentioned measuring the concentration and kind of having a bit more of a calculated approach to treating it and how much, how would one measure H2S concentrations within the system? So I think probably, I mean, a lot of times these electronic detectors can be pretty good on the rig, but as a mud engineer, you may be asked to run the Garrett gas train, which it's kind of one of those, you probably, you may have had to either demo it or see something about it in mud school. It also helps you quantitatively measure CO2. The problem is that we don't run it often enough. And so if you asked me to run it, I'd probably be a little shaky. So it's worth kind of reviewing the work instructions. If you, you know, if you're expecting it, you probably already have it out there and you'll get some training, but it'll tell you how much H2S you have. And even part of the procedure is you drop the pH, right? So let's say you have a pH of 11 and everything, you know, the detectors aren't going off and you're, how much scavenger do I add? The Garrett gas train can actually tell you how much H2S is present or when you drop the pH, how much you might encounter. So it's pretty helpful for specific treatment. You know, I think from that perspective, some of these things take a little time to react as far as scavengers and that sort of thing. So we're almost always going to probably overdo it a little bit. Right. But I think to your point, Justin, on an operational perspective, you know, understanding what you need to do, not panicking. And if you think about, for example, if you're on well control, right, everybody's got a plan, everybody's got a place you know, you start waiting up, you get the trucks moving for more Bayright or kill mud or whatever you need here. If you start having to heave a bunch of, you know, caustic or lime, if you start having to add a bunch of scavenger, keep track of how fast you're using it and get some more on the road. There's no reason to panic because there are so many different protocols to keep you safe. Just know your part in that whole scene. And one thing we've seen a lot of, or or I've seen a lot of more recently is the expectation with the mud engineer is, is like, hey, we're actually just going to bring out some safety professionals to do all this. Yeah. And so your job, if this thing goes off and the concentration is, is beyond permissible working limits, is to step off location until these guys get there and do whatever they're supposed to do to get it under control. And so it's almost like a turnkey to get the H2S under control and then you go back to work. So there is a lot of different levels of training. There's a lot of different things we can do, but it's just sort of knowing your place in the midst of all that. Nobody's, nobody's doing this on their own. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Matt. And something I'll, I want to mention before we wrap it up is while it's important to understand, you know, what products to add and, you know, what do we do if this happens? But the, but the thing that we can do as mud engineers and as mud companies is really just educating ourselves on the actual concepts and the chemistry and and what's going on. And there's a lot of resources out there, 
But I mean, you know, understanding the different, I mean, cause you, most people have gone do a little bit of H2S training, but that's more in general. But if as a mud engineer, just really educate yourselves, Google H2S drilling fluids. I'm sure there's lots of articles or white papers or just, you know, papers in general talking about it. And so always challenge yourself, always keep reading and learning. And even if it's just something that's kind of day in and day out, oh, we've got, you know, H2S scavenger going in and I know I've got to increase my pH, but the best thing you can do is educate yourself. And then that allows you to also train other people. When I was a floor hand, I mean, I didn't understand what half the things I was doing, why I was getting told what to do, not why. So, you know, be a leader out there on the rig, educate yourself, tell the Derek hand, you're going to be adding this. Here's why. Cause the more educated we are on the rig just allows everyone to be a lot safer. So I, ch- I challenge all the mud engineers out there, take five or 10 minutes out of your day whenever you, after you listen to this and, and do some Google research or, or hit us up at the Flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. We've got plenty of material, but again, I can't emphasize it enough is, is the best thing you can do is educate yourself. Agreed. And it's one of those, you're not alone. You, you know, AES folks, obviously, you know, talk to your account managers. We've got plenty of, of materials to support you. And certainly there's, there's a lot of training out there that if you need it, we will certainly make sure you have it. There you go. Well, Matt, those are all the questions I had, you know, short and brief, but some um, that's extremely important. Do you have any closing last words before we get back to business? No, I, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it. Excellent. Well, like we said, if anyone has any questions, you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com, or you can check us out on LinkedIn. We always love engaging with the audience. If you would like to subscribe, that would be huge because that helps support the show. And yeah, send us a note. And if you have any questions, please reach out. And with that being said, have a safe, wonderful day, everybody. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.